All right, good morning everyone. It's, uh, it's really wonderful to be able to, to share with you again this morning. And we're going to be in Nehemiah. So if you have, uh, if you have your Bible, if we're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 9 and chapter 10. And uh, this is going to be our, our final session in this series on the book of Nehemiah. Um, so that's, uh, that's where we're at. And we're going to be uh, thinking a little bit about uh, the people in chapters 9 and 10 as they, they're going to confess their sin. We're going to be thinking a bit about confessing sin. So I don't know um, how that might make you feel this morning as we just hear the title. It, uh, it might be, it might make, feel a bit daunting. It, it might even feel like, oh, is this, is this going to be about making us feel terrible about who we are? We, we know the problems within. But I just want to assure that what we're going to look at is, is full of life. It's full of grace and it's full of hope. We're not going to belittle the problem of sin or pretend it's not there. But we're going to see uh, the wonder of our saviour as well as the reality of our sin as a problem. Just to get us thinking about it, I want to tell you a a story. About this time last year, uh, my family and I were living in in Boric Lodge, which is a house at Cape and Ray. Brilliant house, beautiful house, and it has a... uh, lots of, of white walls. Dave Carter had built it. Uh, still great. And uh, and uh, Andy Thomas, for those who were around when Andy Thomas was part of the church before he moved moved countries, but they they'd done a fantastic job. Brilliant house to live in. These all these white walls inside. And about this time last year, we uh, we saw that on one along one of the white walls, a new piece of artwork had been commissioned. A, uh, somebody using a red crayon had done some, some lovely squiggles along the side of the wall. There were six of us living in the house at the time. And it was, remember this time last year, in complete lockdown. So it could only be one of those six people. I assured Heather that it wasn't me. Reluctantly, she believed me. And we knew it wasn't Heather, of course. That left four suspects, four children. Now, a little background is we knew, we knew that it wasn't Abby and Lucy. Uh, it just wasn't their style. You know, it, I think they would, have, they would have been upset if we'd have thought it was them. You know, the, the artwork just wasn't, wasn't quality enough. It was very random and squiggly. And also, they're, they're older and they knew that that's not what you do. And they would have been upset if they thought it was them. I was also fairly confident it wasn't David. He wasn't a year old and he couldn't stand up. (laughs) That left Peter firmly in the hot seat. But in the interest of justice and a fair trial, all the suspects were brought together. And we, uh, we said, and Abby and Lucy were sure it wasn't them. David didn't say a lot. Peter focuses on Peter. Is this going to be his chance to come forward and to say and to, to, to acknowledge what the problem is and to step into the light? And with the face of an angel, he said, well, I think it must have been David. <laughs> now his reasoning is solid because David can't say anything, so he can't defend himself. So a brilliant strategy. Unfortunately, um, we explained to him that, that he can't stand up, so he can't even reach it. And we did point out, Peter, you've actually got a red crayon in your hand still. <laughs> Second time, Peter, what do you think? 
it's, uh, it's really the odds are stacked against you. Would you, would you want to, to tell us the truth, Peter? How come there is these red squiggles on the wall? And again, with, with a frightening sharpness and the face of an angel, he says, well, it's a mystery. Now, what Peter did there with alarming ease and quickness of thought, that instinct we perfect as we get older. We get very, very good at not taking responsibility for the things we've done. We can avoid it. We can excuse it. We can run away. We can hide it. We get so good at it. We perfect the art. In fact, we get so good that sometimes before we've done something wrong, we've already lined up the excuses. We've already got the escape route set up before we even do it. We are in Nehemiah chapter 9. And, uh, and just to, to kind of bring us up to where we're at, um, the, the people of God have been sent into exile, but remarkably through the grace and power of God have been brought back to Jerusalem. And, and although they still live under the uh, rule and authority of a Persian king, they've been enabled the, the walls to be rebuilt remarkably. And now there's this rebuilding of the people that's going on. And we saw a couple of weeks ago that as the people come together and they read the Bible, they read God's word, and they celebrate. It's it's promoted all this celebration together as they think about who God is and what he's done. But now in chapter 9, we read that not only are they going to celebrate together, there's going to be some things to deal with, to confess. We're looking at chapters 9 and 10, but I won't read that all because it is quite long. Um, But I'd encourage you to to read it uh, maybe later today. I'll read a few verses from chapter 9 to kind of get us into it. On the 24th day of the same month, so just days after that celebration has finished we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from the foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sin and the sin of their ancestors. They stood while where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were... Several names I won't pronounce. They cried out with a loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, some good names again, said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then we have this incredible prayer. I'll read just the beginning. Blessed be your glorious name and may be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them. You gave life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and made a covenant with him to give his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. 
And so the prayer goes on, tracing God's story through the Old Testament with his people, really focusing on God and what he's done, his grace, his kindness, but acknowledging the sin. Of their, of, of, their, of their ancestors. Verse 16. But they, our ancestors, became arrogant and stiff-necked. They did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion and in their rebellion and appointed a leader in order to return to slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. And they continue to to follow the storyline of the Old Testament, recognizing their sin but focusing on their saviour. And then at the end of chapter 9, verse 38, in view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing with our leaders, our Levites, our priests, and are all affixing their seals to it. And chapter 10 is a list of those people who, who, have, who signed that agreement and detail what the people are going to do as they go forward to honour the Sabbath, to honour the Lord, and to live as they ought. So what I want us to do is just notice three things very simply uh, this morning that we see from these chapters. And the first is this, that uh, it's it's important to confess our sin. Chapter 9, verse 1. The 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting, wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. We'll come back to that in a minute. Verse 2, they stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. Towards the end of the verse, they spent another quarter of the day in confession and worshipping the Lord. So what's happening here is as the people uh, gather together under the the teaching of God's word, uh, as God's word is taught and read and explained, so the people come to realise it highlights Sin, it highlights the problem in their life. And they want to acknowledge it. Like we said, there's, a, there's an option. When, when, we, when there's a problem, we can acknowledge it or we can ignore it. We can run away or we can seek to deal with it. And just actually as in any relationship that we're in, that we want to grow and to be healthy and to move forward Whenever we're in that sort of relationship, there'll be times when we realise we've done something wrong. And our response is to to admit it, to recognise it and to seek restoration and forgiveness. And the people here, as they come close to God's word, are recognising there's things wrong and they want to acknowledge that. They want to recognise it and they want to seek restoration and forgiveness. There was a study done uh, a few years ago now and uh, for those uh, students from Cape Ray, I'm almost positive that you'll have heard about this already because I stole this from Derek. But to uh, go along with me, this service was done many years ago and it was uh, done about um, the kind of patterns of life and particularly in the home. And one of the things it discovered was that we spend far more time today cleaning our homes than we have people have done in the past. 
You know, don't ask me how, how exactly how they get all this information. But they, we, we, we spend more time cleaning our homes today than people have done in the past. And various suggestions were put forward as to why that is. Some people are thinking, <laughs> you haven't seen my house. <laughs> in general, some suggestions as to why that might be. One would be, well, we're more house proud now than we ever were in the past. And the researchers looked into it. No, that's not the case. People have always been proud of their homes, whatever that home has looked like. Maybe it's because we've got more money now, so we've got more disposable income. Perhaps we've got more time to clean. That's not the reason either. In the past, perhaps there was groups of servants who were, who were charged with their full-time responsibility to keep things clean. Maybe it's because we've got inventions now to help us, the, the vacuum cleaner, to, to enable us to do it. No, that's not the reason either. The main reason why we spend more time cleaning today than we have in the past is because there's more light in our houses. Modern houses have much bigger windows than houses um, built in the past. You might have seen like old houses with little narrow windows or the little kind of square ones. Modern houses have whole walls of light coming in. Or, or, or electric light, the invention of electricity and lights, these horrible bright shining lights in our homes that, that show up the dirt in every corner. And we clean more now because we see more dirt. And as God's people here are coming closer to God, as they come close to God who is light, one of the natural kind of consequences is you see more dirt. There's more, there's, you're more aware of, your, of sin as, we, as they come closer to God. And so they, they want to deal with it. And then what about all this kind of wearing sackcloth and, and ashes and, and fasting? As you read through the Old Testament, you come across this quite often. People uh, wear sackcloth or ashes, put dust on their, on their heads. And, and, and it's multi-layered. There's, there's, there's different reasons why that, that can be happening. But the big idea here is that what people are doing is they're showing on the outside what they're feeling on the inside. It's a way of expressing an inner reality so that it's just giving voice to it. So, so one of the ways sometimes when people were grieving, they would put on sackcloth and ashes. It's a way to, to kind of, that, all that stuff that's screaming inside, it's a way of expressing it. And, and, and so for here... In this situation, they're fasting, which is about humility. They're wearing this sackcloth and putting ashes, ashes on or dust on their, on their heads. It's a recognition that when in Genesis, when God made man, he, he created him from the dust. And, and when we die, our bodies return to the earth. You know, as a funeral, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. It's a, it's a way of saying, I recognize I'm not the center of the world. It's not all about me. I'm part of a bigger story. It's a a humility thing. And and so the people are coming humble and acknowledging that as they've come close to God, they've recognized sin in their lives, that that light has exposed some darkness, and and they're they're feeling convicted. That has an emotional response. Sometimes it's strange, isn't it, to, to read this sackcloth and ashes, and we think that must have been odd. But I wonder how many times when, when perhaps we're passing through one of those seasons in life where life is really difficult, a trauma or a, a heartache, and you're passing through that time but nobody really knows about it. 
And at work, people still accept the same standard and performance and your friends still, you know, chatting about things that you don't care about because inside you're screaming. Well, that's what this is about. It's, it's just an expression of an, an outward expression of an inward reality. It gives other people a chance to give you a break, <laughs> to treat you with kindness and care. Not, have to, not, not to share everything about it, just to recognize there's something going on here that's, that's big. So the people come together to confess, to acknowledge what's going on. Secondly, the points get shorter. Secondly, I love the way they do it because they, the people, uh, there's an importance to confessing, but the people look to God. They look to him. Just notice how they do it. The focus is not on their sin, but on their saviour. Verse 3, they stood there, sorry, they stood where they were and read from the book of the law of their Lord their God for a quarter of the day and spent another quarter in confession and in worshipping the Lord. And I love this because, because they confess, they acknowledge the reality of sin. They're not pretending, they're not belittling in it, they're not saying it's not important, they acknowledge it. But they wrap it up in the worship of God. You know, they, 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 look, they look at the dirt, they look at the sin, but then they, they lift their eyes and they look to God, they look to their saviour. They, they, they wrap it in, in who he is. It's not about stirring up feelings of self-hatred or, or kind of analysing to the nth degree about how terrible they are. It's, it's a real acknowledgement of sin, but it's a look at, look at the saviour, look at God and his character. Verse 5, stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. Look at him. And then I really encourage you, read that prayer in Nehemiah chapter 9 this afternoon. Read it through. The people track God's activity through the storyline of the Old Testament. Really acknowledging their sin, but seeing the character of God. They're looking at who he is and what he's done. And that bringing a lot of comfort for them. Verse 6 is an example. Verse 6, you alone are the Lord. This is who you are. You are God. And look at what you've done. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all the starry host. The earth and all that's in it. The seas and all that's in them. You give life to everything. And the multitudes of heaven worship you. It, it's, it's looking at who God is. As well as recognising the reality of their sin. I like that. I wonder, I wonder if you've ever been in one of those situations where you're, you're hearing, and I've got to be careful here, of hearing uh, somebody share testimony. And, and in the testimony, we get absolutely loads of detail about the life of sin. We get all the sex, drugs and rock and roll. 20 minutes, half an hour, and then we get a couple of sentences at the end, and then I became a Christian. And I want to say, boring. I don't want to hear about it. I know the problem. I know the problem really well. I've got it in my life. I'm wrestling with it. I want to know about Jesus. I want to know about the Savior. I want to know about the creator of the whole world and what he's like and who he is and what he's done. I don't want to know about that. Now, <laughs> granted, it can be very helpful to have a context. It can be very useful to outline things. Please don't take what I'm saying to an extreme 
But why do we dwell on the sin instead of the, the wonder of the Savior? The people, they acknowledge their sin, but they look to their God. And we have a great story because the, the Lord has come to this earth and he's died on a cross to free us, to pay the price for our sin, that we might be free, that we might go forward. That's why confession is so important, isn't it? Confession as a Christian, that's, one of the, that's how we're born. As a, as, as a Christian, we, we, we acknowledge our sin, we confess it, we repent, we turn from it, and we put our faith and trust in Jesus. That's how we're born again. You know, if you, are, if you're, um, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just. And will cleanse you from all sin and all unrighteousness. And it's how we keep growing. So the people, they acknowledge their sin. They look to God and his character and his past and what he's done. And thirdly and finally, they look to do something practical. They look to move forward. So for the people, they, they come together. They recognize what the problem has been. They see God's faithfulness and goodness. And then they, they write this agreement so we've been going wrong in these areas. Let's commit to, to, to getting it right in these areas. They, they do something very practical. And I like that because often we, um, we just make things very theoretical. And, and the people just, you know what, let's get together. Let's write down what we're going to do and let's do it. Just a very practical approach to moving forward. To so draw towards a close, I want to uh, I want to suggest something uh, for you to ponder, uh, for you to think. What we've looked at here, as uh, with as a people confess, has all been done in a in a very public way. The people come uh, to hear the teaching of God's word together. They confess together. They acknowledge God and look to His character together, and they do something practical together in, in, in our world at the moment we, we tend to very much privatize this part of life we come together to praise we come together to pray we're quite slow to come together to confess for, for lots of good reasons <laughs> for lots of good reasons but I wonder if just as the body of Christ, just as the community of believers has a part to play as we pray together and as we praise together and as we learn together, maybe, maybe the body of Christ has a part to play in how we grow together. Now, I've got to be real careful here. What we're not going to do is next week is have an open mic where we can all just come up and share our problems and struggles. I don't mean that. I just mean in, in appropriate settings. Maybe in a small group or with one or two other uh, uh, brothers and sisters. Is there a role to play for us as, as believers to help and support each other? To confess, because we're all in this together. <laughs> we all need God's grace. We all need his forgiveness. No one has got it all together. We need each other. And I wonder if there isn't some importance in us confessing together. When, when we confess, what we typically do is we go into, into our room, close the door, we might confess to God in the quietness of our hearts. And that's really important, that's really wonderful. Primarily our sin is against God. And we can comfort ourselves in his knowledge of his character, his goodness and what he's done for us. 
But, but when we do it with others, there's a level of humility that we hit as we acknowledge our weakness and our need. And it's uncomfortable and it's difficult. But then we also have, the, we give the opportunity for brothers and sisters to, to speak the good news back to us. That we hear somebody say, yes, and Jesus has died for that. And that price has been paid. That isn't, that isn't bigger than what Jesus did at the cross. And then we give other people, brothers and sisters, the, the right people in appropriate settings, clearly, the chance to say yes. And there's, a, and, there's, and there's a support group for that. There's software for your computer for that. There's, I'm dealing with something similar. Let's commit to pray for each other about that. And, some, and, and give a practical outworking for it. Purposely, I don't want to um, give any uh, guesses at what, how this might evidence itself in our lives because it will be true for us all but in lots of different ways. But I think the principle we see in Nehemiah chapter 9 and 10 is that it's important to confess. It's safe to confess as we, look, we, we, we soak it in the character and goodness and activity of God. And it is important too where appropriate, to put in some practical steps as we move forward. And as a church, as brothers and sisters, we can help each other with it. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I'm going to pray. And as I pray, I'm going to ask the, uh, the team to come up and uh, they're going to lead us in a couple of songs. As we close, we want. As we close, we want to. We want to worship God. That's what the people did. There was the reality to confession, but as the people recognised their sinful condition, they just reflected it back in praise to God, recognising who He is. He's safe with it. He deals with it, and He wants us to move forward. And so we're going to to sing. During the singing of uh, of their songs, their children will come back and find where they were sat before. So we're going to just try that for a week or two of a way of Sunday school coming back in in the Sunday school in the closing songs. That's not crash and it's not the teens. Let me pray, Father. We uh, we acknowledge, Lord, that um, that we get things wrong. There are attitudes in our life which are, which are not right. Father, we are prone to pride. We're prone to, um, to, to all sorts of, of, of failings and falls. But we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us alone, but that you have um, you've dealt with that, Lord, that the Lord Jesus, in the life he lived, in the death he died, and in his amazing resurrection, has paid the price for our sin. Lord, I pray that you'll give us the, uh, the courage and the sensitivity, Lord, as you highlight different things in our lives to acknowledge their presence, to seek, your, to seek you in those areas and to receive your grace and forgiveness and to move on. 
Father, we pray for that in our lives and in each other's lives. In Jesus' name, amen.